You have put a new song in my mouth. A song of praise. A sound that resonates that all of heaven and earth may worship you. We tread the hills to meet with you, to see your majesty in all that surrounds us. For it speaks and displays the eternal God of ages, creator, author, victor. In love, you established an everlasting covenant with your people, and it's your love that captivates us. As children of the King, we rush in as waves unrestrained, overcome, overwhelmed, that the King crowned in glory and splendor would reach down to place a crown upon our heads. So we raise our banner, the banner we boldly stand under, the banner of Jesus Christ. From dusk to dawn, from age to age, your praise resounds in all the earth. Deliverer, Redeemer, ruler of an everlasting kingdom that cannot be shaken. We trust in the name of Christ Jesus, the only King forever. Welcome to Zion's Redemption Radio. This is Fundamentally Mormon. I'm your host, Mark Lichtenwalter. The guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. That's 917-889-8827. You can find this at blogtalkradio.com forward slash fundamentally Mormon. And the text will also be posted on my Facebook wall at facebook.com forward slash L-A-Z-U-R-U-S 1977. You can also find the text and the audio to this radio program on iTunes at Fundamentally Mormon and in the different Facebook groups that I am an admin of. Some of those groups are LDS Last Days Prophecy and Gospel Discussions, LDS Gospel Mysteries, Latter-day Unity, and others. You can find the pages that I admin also on my Facebook wall. And if you enjoy this program, please friend request me or follow me and uh, make me one of your close friends. We try to put out as many episodes as we can during the week. But I'm thankful for you to be here today. Let's get right into the reading today. We are going to be reading out of Ogden Kraut's books. You can find his books for free to read online at ogdenkraut.com. That's O-G-D-E-N-K-R-A-U-T.com. That's O-G-D-E-N-K-R-A-U-T.com. And today is the 21st day of April 2021. The guest caller number is 917-889-8827. We are going to be, uh, let me see here. I'm going to open up the chat room so that people can use that if they want during the reading. And, okay, that's done. All right, uh, we're going to be reading The Christians, Chapter 10 of Holy Priesthood, Volume 4, pages 89 to 99. And I'll dedicate the program. We'll get right into the reading. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We thank thee, Father, for the technology to reach a worldwide audience about the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ upon the earth through the prophet Joseph Smith. We love thee, Father, and we thank thee for all of the many blessings that we enjoy in this world. We ask thee that thou would watch over us as we go throughout our day and throughout our evening into tomorrow. We love thee and we thank thee for thy son, Jesus Christ, and all that he did for us. We say these things and ask for thy blessings to be upon us as we strive to become tools in thine hand to bring about Zion's redemption and thy kingdom in heaven to the earth. 
We say these things in the name of Yeshua HaMashiach, even Jesus the Christ. Amen. The Christians, Chapter 10 of Holy Priesthood, Volume 4, pages 89 through 99. Christ fulfilled the law. When Jesus Christ was born, polygamy was known and lived by various nationalities all over the world. Many of the Jews that he associated with either talked about it or were living it. How could these learned biblical scholars teach about the ancient prophets without bringing up the subject of their many wives? These people were caught between the ancient Israel laws that advocated polygamy and those of the Roman Empire that discouraged it. So isn't it strange that on the written record, Jesus never said a single word about either law? In all the writings of his disciples, never did they say a word for or against plural marriage. This unusual mystery certainly indicates that some sort of editing must have been in the original manuscripts. If Jesus had said something negative about plural marriage, there would be no reason to hide it because monogamy was the most common form of marriage and enforcing monogamy would have given the Christians more favor with the Roman government. But no law for monogamy is included in the New Testament, nor is there any law against polygamy. If Jesus said anything favorable about plural marriage, why was it omitted from the New Testament manuscripts? There are at least two reasons. One is because some Contemporary Christians, like Mormons, hated that principle. They would rather obey the law of the land than the law of God. They would edit manuscripts in history to eliminate anything in favor to the subject. Secondly, they would encourage monogamy to protect themselves from persecution. By gaining favor with the Roman government, they could find jobs, acceptance, and political position. It is a story that would be repeated nearly 2,000 years later in the restored church. This is understandable when we read the prophecy of Nephi who mentioned a book that is recorded of the Jews, which contains the covenants of the Lord which he hath made unto the house of Israel. And that contains the covenants of the Lord of great worth unto the Gentiles. But after it goes forth, a great and abominable church have taken away from the gospel of the Lamb many parts which were plain and most precious. And also many covenants of the Lord have they taken away. And quote, First Nephi in the Book of Mormon, chapter 13, verses 23 through 26. Nephi continued by saying that an exceeding great many do stumble, yea, insomuch that Satan hath great power over them. Verse 29. See also the rest of that chapter in all of chapter 14. Changes and omissions are difficult to prove since we do not have any original or early Bible manuscripts to compare with. However, we do have some evidence from within the Bible itself. For instance, all of the Bibles published before the King James translation had a most interesting prophecy about the Messiah or Jesus Christ who was to come. From the Geneva Bible published in London in 1599 comes this photocopy. And since we're doing a radio show, I can't show that to you. But let's see here. It's talking about the 45th chapter of Psalms, verses 8, 9, 10, and 11 from the Geneva Bible. Um, Before I go on with the reading, we do have a lot of evidence that there were things that were changed Um, The earliest manuscripts, 
as matched with uh, more modern copies, there's a lot of things that were added and taken away from those uh, manuscripts. Uh, for instance, um, the woman caught in adultery is not in the original manuscripts, and everything about women having to be silent in the churches, none of that is in the manuscripts. And the reason for that is because the Roman government hijacked early Christianity. And anyone who um, – so the earliest people of, of – uh, the earliest Christians were Jews. They kept the Jewish traditions, feasts, holy days, uh, laws. They continued worshiping in the temple. In fact, Paul – uh, he insists on going to Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread and partake in Silver Meal in Jerusalem. That's why he got caught. Um, that actually, that choice led to his eventual death. He actually uh, took the Nazarite vow because people were accusing him of changing the law of God, which Jesus said, I do not come to do away with one jot nor tittle. And part of the Nazarite vow was a animal sacrifice that you had to pay. And then there's some other things that went along with it. But they continued to, to keep the feasts and the festivals and the original true Holy Sabbath from Friday night to Saturday night. Um, so it's just um, the Romans were inspired by Satan to destroy the Christian church much the same way that the Gentiles persecuted and tried to destroy the restoration when it came. And then when they couldn't do that, because they were doing a whole bunch of stuff to the early Christians, they were setting them on fire, they were throwing them to animals, they were making them kill each other, they, they were torturing them, but the early church continued to grow and they couldn't stop it. So then they hijacked it and they turned it into something else. So anyway, um, I'll get back into the reading. I didn't want to get too far off the subject here. Again, the Church of England, Bible published in 1636, has an interesting footnote attached to their translation. Uh, okay, I can't see the photocopy because we're online and we're doing a radio show. So uh, we're on page 92 if you are reading along with us. The Apostle Orson Pratt commented on this. King James translators were not willing that this passage should have a literal translation according to the former English rendering, lest it should give countenance to polygamy. Therefore, they altered the translation to honorable women instead of wives. But any person acquainted with the original can see that the first translators have given the true rendering of that passage. See the seer, page 160. So, um... The scripture that he is quoting is um, King, the king's wives or the Messiah's wives were above, or I can't remember. And it, I'm supposed to be able to see a photocopy of this. I'm reading it online, so I don't have the actual book with me at this time. So I can't see what they're talking about, which is unfortunate because when you're reading it online, you should be able to know what they're talking about. And I do know what he's talking about, but I can't remember exactly how it is written. It's kings, the king's wives are among his honorable women or something. I can't remember that. Uh, hold on. I got to get a drink. My throat is itchy today. <laughs> All right. Not as bad as normal, though, unfortunately. In his day, Jesus could, not, or could see the need for living plural marriage, for about the time of his birth, Herod, King Herod, had ordered thousands of male children killed, leaving a great surplus of women uh, that were Christ's age. Added to this, many young men were killed in the usual wars and depredations of life. 
So why should Jesus and the, the apostles prohibit plural marriage, which would have solved the problem? They also had children, the chosen lineage of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jesus, and his apostles would still be represented on the earth in these last uh, in in these last days as latter day prophets have come among the other things he speaking of George Q. Cannon, an early apostle of the restoration, said there are those in this audience who are descendants of the old twelve apostles, and shall I say it? Yes, descendants of the Savior himself. His seed is represented in the body of this man, uh, this body of men. Let me just say real quick. In Isaiah, when it's talking about in Isaiah fifty three, when it's talking about Jesus Christ and all he does, it says, and he shall look down upon his seed or children. Now the Christians who want to believe that Jesus wasn't married, even that even though that goes against everything that is true, um, and if you want to read a good book on that, go read Jesus Was Married by Ogden Crowd at OgdenCrowd.com. But uh he looked down upon his seed or his children when he was when he was upon the cross. When Joseph Smith was in the Liberty Jail and Jesus Christ is telling him, you know, giving him words of comfort, those words, if you go and read them, are Jesus talking about not what Joseph Smith was going through, but what he himself was going through. When he said, oh, Father, why are they coming to take you away? In order to get, make sure that Jesus Christ's children and wives were not murdered by the Romans and the Jews, Joseph of Arimathea, who was great uncle of Jesus Christ and the uncle of Miriam, Christ's mother, he uh, traded tin and had a trade route in associations up beyond Hadrian's Wall in what we call modern-day Scotland, which was out of the Roman Empire. Joseph of Arimathea took the descendants of Jesus Christ and his wives out of the Roman Empire beyond Hadrian's Wall, and their descendants are in Scotland. Following President Cannon, President Snow arose and said what Brother Cannon has stated respecting the literal descendants among this company of the old apostles and the Savior himself is true. The Savior needs the Savior's seed is represented in this body of men. End quote. Journal of President Rudger Clausen pages 374 and 375. We say it was Jesus Christ who was married to be brought into the relation whereby he could see his seed before he was crucified. Quote, Has he indeed passed by the nature of angels and taken upon himself the seed of Abraham to die without leaving a seed to bear his name on earth? No, but when the secret is fully out, the seed of the blessed shall be gathered in. In these last days. 
And he who has not the blood of Abraham flowing in his veins, who has not one particle of the Savior in him, I am afraid is a stereotyped Gentile who will be left out and not gathered in in the last days. For I tell you, it is the chosen of God, the seed of the blessed, that shall be gathered. Hold on, I'm trying to figure something out here. I do not despise to be called a son of Abraham. If he had a dozen wives, or to be called a brother, a son, a child of the Savior, if he had Mary and Martha and several other as wives, and though he did cast seven devils out of one of them, it is all the same to me. And let me just say, the Catholic Roman pagans who hijacked early Christianity, they made up that crap about Mary having seven devils cast out of her because she was the wife of Jesus and because they worshipped the Apollo sun god and the pagan traditions that they had and mingled them in with early Christianity, they um, they had to get rid of uh, Mary as his wife, which the early Christians knew about, and they had to destroy her in any way that they could, which they did. So they come up with this crap about Mary of Magdalene being some kind of prostitute or some kind of, I don't know, something, but it's just not true. It's not true at all. It's a lie straight from hell. Hold on here. I'm trying to keep my... I confiscated my son's tablet because my son doesn't like to do what he needs to do when he's got electronics He'll like go into the bathroom and actually just hide in there. So I am, uh, I'm using it for my, uh, hold on here. I'm using it for my, uh, my studio so I can do my studio here. Hold on. Okay. Anyway, sorry, we'll get back into the reading in just one minute. I'm just trying to get back to the studio. Okay, I'm here. All right, like I said, chat room's available. And there are 50 lines available for people that want to listen uh, using their phone lines. Say if you're commuting and you don't want to use up your data, uh, the the guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. That is a Manhattan, uh, New York area code number so that's available for people I actually uh, inquired about getting a more local number because most of my people are out here in the west not Manhattan and uh, they said they can't change it so oh well okay continuing on with the quote well then he shall see his seed and who shall declare his generation For he was cut off from the earth. And shall I say here that before the Savior died, he looked upon his own natural children as we look upon ours. He saw his seed. And immediately afterwards, he was cut off from the earth. But who shall declare his generation? They had no father to hold them in honorable remembrance. They passed into the shades of obscurity, never to be exposed to mortal eyes as the seed of the Blessed One. For no doubt, had they been exposed to the eye of the world, those infants might have shared the same fate as the children in Jerusalem in the days of Herod. When all the children were ordered to be slain under such, uh, such an age, being two years old, uh, 
with the hopes of slaying the infant savior. History is replete with circumstances of neck-or-nothing politicians dying their hands in the blood of those who stood in their way to the throne or to power. That seed had been that seed has had its influence upon the chosen of God in the last days. The same spirit inspires them that inspired their father, who bled and died upon the cross after the manner of the flesh. End quote. Journal of Discourses, Volume 1, page 82 and 83, and that was uh, the Apostle uh, Orson Hyde. All right. Two years later, Orson Hyde spoke again on this subject. Quote, Abraham was chosen of God for the purpose of raising up a chosen seed and a peculiar people unto his name. Jesus Christ was sent into the world for a similar purpose, but upon a more extended scale. Christ was the seed of Abraham, so reckoned. Promises were made, one of which, that in Abraham and his seed, which was Christ, all the families of the earth should be blessed. When? When the ungodly or those not of their seed should be cut off from the earth and no family remain on earth except their own seed. Then in Abraham and in Christ, all the families and kindreds of the earth shall will be blessed, and Satan will be bound, and the millennium fully come. Then the meek will inherit the earth, and God's elect reign undisturbed at least for 1,000 years. Is there no way provided for those to come into this covenant relation who may not possess in their veins any of the blood of Abraham or of Christ? Yes. By doing the works of Abraham and of Christ in the faith of Abraham and of Christ, not in unbelief and unrighteousness, like the wicked world who have damned themselves in their own corruption and unbelief. Orson, uh, Orson Hyde, Journal of Discourses, Volume 4, page 260. When Jesus frequently counseled his followers to search the scriptures, he was referring to the Old Testament. And that, um, that quote where he said, search the scriptures, is John chapter 5, verse 39. So there, were, there, was, no Old Test, uh, there was no New Testament back then. The scriptures were the Old Testament, the Tanakh, the Torah. That's what he taught from. So when he says, search the scriptures, that's what he's talking about. uh, Continuing, he was referring to the Old Testament. He did not preach against the laws of Moses, nor did he try to change or do away with them. At the beginning of his ministry, he made it clear, quote, and this is Jesus Christ, think not that I am come to do or to destroy the law or the prophets, end quote, Matthew chapter 15, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. He even suggested that the law would continue long afterwards, quote, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law or the Torah till all be fulfilled. Matthew chapter 5, verse 18. Uh, the early Christians continued to keep the Torah of God. When Jesus talks about fulfilling the Torah, that is the Hebrew way of saying that he lived it perfectly. If a rabbi says you are fulfilling Torah, he means that you are living the law perfectly. That's all that means. Jesus never did away with the laws. He never did away with the true Sabbath, which was Friday night to Saturday night. 
and he never did away with the feasts and the festivals of Jehovah or the memorial days that he himself celebrated. Now, this whole thing about what would Jesus do, he kept Torah. He did it as an example of how we must live. There were certain things that were fulfilled because he, as the Lamb of God, fulfilled them, certain sacrifices that he fulfilled that we do not have to keep because they are done. But the law, the true law of God, is still uh, you know, part of his teachings. He taught them. He's the one that gave them to Moshe as a representative of Jehovah on the earth. Jesus did that. He's the angel of God, or he was the angel of God that delivered that to the uh, to Mo- Moshe or Moses. Anyway, continuing on. Then he continued by saying that if a man would teach these Old Testament laws of Scripture, he would be considered great in heaven. Orson Pratt, Orson Pratt explained, quote, Some may say that when Christ came, old things were done away and all things became new. But who does not know that this had reference only to the law of carnal commandments and ordinances which Christ came to fulfill? Who does not know that they were that there were many commandments and laws which were connected with the law of ordinances which were continued under the gospel the 10 commandments were not done away in Christ prayer which was practiced under the law was also necessary under the gospel the gospel did not abolish the law against stealing against killing against taking the name of the lord in vain against false witnesses, or against drunkenness, or against any other abominations. Christ did not do away with the law of doing good to one's neighbor, the law of unrighteousness and and honesty which should characterize their dealings one with another. Christ, by introducing the gospel, never intended to abolish the law practiced among the Israelites, in helping with the poor, the needy, the fatherless, and the widow. Hence, there were hundreds of commands and laws under the patriarchal and mosaic dispensations which Christ did not come to do away. What was moral and good and righteous before before Christ came was equally so after he came, unless we can find some evidence to the contrary. That's end quote by Orson Pratt in his book, The Seer, page 63. So real quick, I don't know if Orson knew this. I only know this because, well, I think Joseph Smith would have known it. He would have known this. But like, what could he do? He didn't have the 116 pages to show the people. But in the original unabridged version of the book of Lehi, that Joseph Smith didn't have, so maybe he didn't know about it. I haven't. All of the Book of Mormon has abridged records. I have the unabridged, uh, at least of the Book of Lehi. And in the Book of Lehi, it talks about King Josiah, king of Israel, and during his reign, he was like 20 years old, one of the temple workers discovered a cavity in the rock within the temple and they found the the law of God written upon scrolls in that place. Now, a little history, they had lost the law of God for some reason. I can't remember exactly why, but they didn't they didn't have the law of God. But they found the thing and then the 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 temple worker went to the high priest and the high priest brought it, brought it to Josiah and Josiah convened a council before they released the information that they had this this law this Torah law and they added many things to the Torah which were not part of the original instructions of God so you've got a lot of vain and foolish things within the 613 laws of the Torah that 
were not originally part of the Torah. But Christ came to live the true Torah. And see, the rabbis, even the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they would add many foolish traditions, just the same way that Josiah did. But what Josiah did was worse, because he added it to Scripture, even though he was commanded in Deuteronomy not to add or take away one part of this law. They did it anyway. And for all of King Josiah's troubles on the battlefield, King Nebo actually shot an arrow up into the air, and it came down and went right in between the armor of his shoulders and his helmet, right in his neck, and and came down in such a way that pierced his heart. That's how King Josiah died. And God allowed that because of his wickedness. And the only reason I know that is because, fortunately for me, I have the book of Lehi, and I'm not going to share it with people because people are not ready for it. And even if I did share it, it would have to be abridged because there's things in it that would be offensive to your traditions and your culture. So anyway, um, let's see here. Christ was the Messiah to come in the meridian of time. His mission was to teach and live as an example of the law of God. So he lived it to teach us how we should live it. He lived it perfectly as an example to us. Although he lived without sin, he was baptized not for the remission of sins, but to fulfill or obey the law or the Torah. Baptism was a law imposed on everyone, and Jesus was no exception to that law. So baptism in the Old Testament is called the mikvah, and it's part of a cleansing ritual that you go through before you go through the temple. And like, there's a bunch of different reasons that you go through this, this ritual, cleansing ritual called the mikvah or the baptism, and Jesus went through that. He probably went through it more times than one, but I don't know. That's speculation, but just knowing Jewish culture and what the deal was back then, I'm pretty sure he went through it when he was uh, when he had his uh, bar mitzvah before he went in the temple when he was 12 years old. I'm pretty sure he went through a mikvah or a baptism. In fact, you would have had to have gone through that because that was part of going into the temple. So let's see here. Plural marriage was also a law, and he was no exception to that one either. Some of the modern Christians who believe that the law was done away with in the coming of Christ quote Luke in supporting this, quote, the law and the prophets were until John, since that time, the kingdom of God is preached and every man presseth into it. Luke chapter 16, verse 16. But Jesus continued to keep the law after John. And he fulfilled Torah by living it completely. So for those of you who are reading along, we are on page 96. We are going to be reading to page 99, and then we're going, I'm going to open up the chat room and I'll do a quick preview of tomorrow's chapter, chapter 11. And then if we have callers, I'll take the callers. If you don't want to come on the air, you can also go to the chat room at blogtalkradio.com forward slash fundamentally Mormon. And any questions or comments that are appropriate, I will read on the air and comment on and all that fun stuff. Page 96. But if this were literally true, then all the laws, including the Ten Commandments, were to be done away at the coming of Christ. The next verse somewhat contradicts this idea, however, quote, and it is easier for heaven and earth to pass than one tittle of the law fail. That means one minute, small portion of the Torah fell. Luke chapter 16, verse 17. Thus the law, or the Torah, does not change, and it cannot be done away. And Christ did not destroy it. 
these same verses were greatly clarified in Joseph Smith's translation of the Bible. Quote, Then said Jesus unto them, The law and the prophets testify of me. Yea, and all the prophets who have written, even until John, have foretold of these days. Since that time the kingdom of God is preached, and every man who seeketh truth presseth into it. And it is easier for heaven and to earth and for earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. And why teach ye the law or the Torah, and deny that which is written, and condemn him whom the Father hath sent to fulfill the law, which means to live it perfectly, that you all might be redeemed? Luke chapter 16 of the Joseph Smith-inspired translation, verses 17 through 20. All the law and the prophets, or the Torah, the Ketuvim, and the Nevi'im, up to the time of John, pointed to the coming of the Messiah, who was the object of all the law and their prophecies. There would be no new law, as the good scholar recognized, quote, neither Jesus nor John came preaching something absolutely new, Theirs was a word of fulfillment. Zondervan's Encyclopedia of the Bible, Volume 3, page 642. But no one made it more clear than Jesus himself when he said, Think not that I am come to destroy the Torah or the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. To fulfill the law means to obey and carry out the Torah completely. Like I said, if a Jewish rabbi says that you are fulfilling Torah, that means that you are living it perfectly. For this reason, our Messiah obeyed and lived the law of polygamy, along with all other, all of God's other laws. That includes getting married, multiplying and replenishing the earth, all of that. He kept it perfectly. That's all part of the law of God in, in the first five books of the Torah or the Pentateuch. A Christian minister by the name of James Campbell, Campbell traveled the world in the 1860s and studied its many religions. One of the most interesting parts of his study was the practice of plural marriage. He eventually wrote a book about it and said, quote, let the inspiration of perpetual authority in the Old Testament be fully, be fully omitted, yet the modern Christian may say we do not live under the first covenant nor observe the ceremonies of Moses, but we live in the new dispensation until the full light of the gospel, Christ has fulfilled and the ritual and the emblematical ordinances of the law and set them aside and it is presumed that the ancient marriage laws have been set aside among the rest and superseded by the pure system of monogamy. But this assumption cannot be supported either by sufficient testimony or by valid reasoning. The social system of polygamy had existed before the time of Moses and had no dependence upon the ceremonial, ceremonial law which was instituted in his day. The law only confirmed it as a pre-existent institution. Marriage laws cannot be regarded as merely ritual and emblematical. They are moral and fundamental guarding the, the dearest rights and punishing the deepest wrongs of mankind. They are therefore equally permanent with those laws protecting life and property, those inaccurate inculcated obedience to parents and rulers and those maintaining the sanctity the sanctity of oaths all these together with the marriage laws existed before the time of Moses and have survived the time of Christ they are among those laws that Jesus came to are not to subvert but to ratify as George Campbell of Edinburgh 
has in Matthew chapter 17 very exactly translated the terms Hebrew and Hebrew. Hence, the marriage system of polygamy never formed a part of the ceremonial dispensation, which was abrogated by the New Testament, nor has it ever been proved that the New Testament was designed to affect any change in it. But the presumption is that the new dispensation has also left it, and as it, uh, left it as it found it, abiding still in force. If any change were to be made in the institution of such long-standing confirmed by positive law, it could obviously be made only by equally positive and explicit ordinances or enactments of the gospel. But such enactments are wanting. Christ himself was altogether silent in respect to polygamy, not once alluding to, to it. Yet it was practiced at the time of his advent throughout Judea and Galilee, and all and in all other countries of Asia and Africa, and without doubt by some of his own disciples. The book of Acts is equally silent as the four Gospels are. No allusion to it is found in any of the sermons or instructions or discussions of the apostles, and the early saints recorded in that book. It was not because Jesus or the apostles durst not condemn it, had they considered it sinful, that they did not speak of it, for Jesus hesitated not to, dis to denounce the sins of hypocrisy, covetousness, adultery, and even to alter and amend, apparently, the ancient laws respecting divorce and retaliation, but he never rebuked them for their polygamy, nor instituted any change in that system. But this uniform silence, so far as it implies anything, implies approval. John the Baptist, or Yochanan the Immerser, that's what I like to call him, was thrown into prison where he was afterwards beheaded for reproving King Herod on account of his adultery and we cannot doubt that if he had considered polygamy to be sinful, he would have mentioned it. For Herod's father was just before that time living with nine wives whose names are recorded by Josephus in his Antiquities of the Jews. But John only reproved him for marrying Herodias, um, his brother Philip's wife, um, while the brother was living, so that was against that was against Torlight. He, he shouldn't have done that. That's why he's getting rebuked by Yochanan the Immerser of John the Baptist. But they didn't bring up polygamy because that wasn't that wasn't a sin, and it's not a sin. Uh, it's a sin to multiply wives. Continuing anyway. He administered the same reproof to Herod that Nathan had done formerly to David, and for similar reasons. The apostle always denounced the sins of fornication and adultery, but never denounced polygamy, nor or intimated in any way that it was a sin. And all the long and painful catalogs of this of sin enumerated in the first, second, and third chapters of Romans, many which relate to the unlawful indulgence of amorous propensities, polygamy is not once named. It is the very place where it is morally certain that it would have been named if it were sinful. And that it is not there named, we are fully warned warranted to believe that it is not sinful. And quote the history and philosophy of marriage by Campbell, page 68 through 71. In all the clouds of confusion, men may will frequently fail or fail customs, fail uh, traditions, circumstances, regulations, 
and public law may lead mankind away from the laws of God. Jesus constantly fought against the apostate traditions of the Jews, saying, Why do you also transgress the commandments of God by your tradition? Matthew chapter 15, verse 3. Regulations and laws are often made by traditions, and the laws governing monogamy were among them. If Christ had changed the moral laws, he would have proved himself a fraud. Morality, including marriage and all the principles and laws connected with with it, and God said they could not and would not change. For uh, he declared, "For I am the Lord, and I change not." Malachi chapter three verse six, and so shall I keep thy law continually, forever and forever. Psalms one nineteen. Verse 44. Much more could be said in this chapter about the marriages of Christ and his apostles, including their plural marriages. But for further information, see this author's book entitled Jesus Was Married and Polygamy in the Bible. And you can find those at ogdenkraut.com. So uh, we'll do the first page of chapter 11 we're on page 100 and after this reading if we have any questions or comments commit that time if not then I will end the program chapter 11 this is what we're going to be reading tomorrow the Catholics polygamy against secular and ecclesiastical law As is true in every dispensation, when prophets bring the word of God to man, the gospel of Jesus Christ also began to be changed within a few years of its beginning. Departure from true principles did not occur suddenly, but rather with small compromises, gradual changes and alterations similar to the setting of the sun when darkness slowly overtakes the light. During Christ's ministry, there were thousands who came to listen and follow him, but just before his crucifixion, all the disciples forsook him and fled. Matthew 26, verse 56. Jesus warned his disciples that the dangers could come from within their own ranks. They shall put you out of the synagogues or the churches. John chapter 16, verse 2. Paul wrote to the saints, The mystery of iniquity doth already work in Second Thessalonians, uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. But I think there's a typo here in this, this text. Anyway, and he also said, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you unto the grace of Christ unto another gospel. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. And I wanted to say something about this. We are given a gospel. Jesus Christ taught the Torah, and that that's part of the gospel. When you go changing the gospel and you go to this other gospel, that's what that's what Paul is talking about here. Let me read it again. Re- let me read it again. This is Paul who kept the Torah and he followed the 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 law and the feasts and the festivals, and the rituals, the true Torah, and he taught them as his master Jesus did, and he says. Here to the Galatian saints, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you unto the grace of Christ unto another gospel. The Roman Catholics changed the gospel, and the gospel that you live is another gospel from that which which Christ taught and lived himself. To the saints in Asia, he said, All they which are in Asia be turned away from me. In Second Timothy chapter fifteen, or chapter one, verse fifteen. Oh wait, that 
that's that. Hold on. Okay, the next chat, uh, the next scripture. Sorry. Now I'm all screwed up. <laughs> but evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Second Timothy chapter thirteen, chapter three, verse thirteen. Then again, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears, and they shall t- turn away from their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. Second Timothy, chapter four, verses four, uh, three through four. So, well, that was a pretty good reading for today. Um, I didn't stumble as much as I did yesterday. Thank goodness for that. And um, uh, I did get the um, yesterday's program uh, put onto YouTube, and you can find that at youtube.com forward slash user forward slash God is my couple or by searching fundamentally Mormon. You should be able to find that pretty easy. And um, I also will post the text to tomorrow's program on the YouTube page tonight. So you'll have it all day long to listen to it. If you want to read it and then chime in in the conversation, I always try to come on at 4 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern. So, all right, well, that's the end of the program. And um, like I said, I'll be back on tomorrow. Thank you for listening, everyone. Take care. God bless and goodbye. Thank you.